Um, good morning, guys. If I haven't met you, my name is Nick, uh, and I am the lead pastor here. I'm happy, like Ian said, to get to celebrate uh, Father's Day. I like that some of these holidays uh, fall on Sundays. It's nice, um, because it means I get to give away things and uh, and talk to you a little bit about it. So I actually have something for dads. Um, and I don't have, I kind of did this on Mother's Day as well, but... Um, I don't have one for everybody, although this was not that expensive, so perhaps I could have, so my apologies. Uh, but if you are a dad and you think you would read this little booklet on how should men lead their families, which I found to be very helpful, uh, raise your hand and I will, first people I see to raise their hand, it's coming to them, so, all right. Okay, got one. Basically, it takes the, uh, takes the anointed offices of Christ, so the idea of um, prophet, priest, and king, and draw, uh-oh, I, I, I'm sorry, dude, the pillar was blocky, I, I didn't see that, actually, I have another one in my backpack, you can you can have it after the service, uh, it takes the, the offices of Christ, um, the anointed offices of the Old Testament that Christ fulfills, namely prophet, priest, king, talks about how, in an analogical way, husbands... Uh, fathers, men in, in the home are to be kind of prophets, priests, kings like Jesus was. Um, so pretty cool. Hopefully you guys are blessed by that. Um, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. <laughs> Get ready, it's a genealogy today. I literally had to practice this because I couldn't, I couldn't pronounce all the names. Uh, if you need a Bible, um, raise your hand. Ushers will get one to you. Um, but it's Luke 3, and we're in verse 23. And yes, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to read all the way down to verse 38. We're going to do this, okay? <laughs> Believe it or not, this is, this, this is the inspired Word of God. Is everybody there? Yeah, good. Here we go. Let me read it and we'll pray. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam. Feeling edified yet? <laughs> the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eli- Eli- Eliakim, the son of Malaya the son of Menna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray.
If there's anything that genealogy tells us, Lord, we see you've been planning our redemption for a long time. Through every fallen generation, perhaps we thought we were moving backwards. You were moving us forward. I think it's an incredible text for Father's Day. To see the one Father above all send his son to redeem fallen fathers and sons. Jesus, I ask that you would use the time we have here draw us to yourself. There are places that we're distracted, places where we're divided. places where we're doubting, places where we're hurting. Please come. Come and minister to your people, God. We see your word as our sustenance. And we're hungry. We're needy. So I ask for your help uh, in speaking, and I pray that you would grant all of us your help in listening, meditating, worshiping. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you guys a question to get us started here. Um, does your past define you. What I mean by that is this. In, in your life, do you feel almost as if kind of the family record, so to speak, is just on repeat with you? Like who your mom was, you're destined to be. And what your dad did you're destined to do. Your past defines you. Your past owns you. You're going to be the failure, the sinner, the drunkard, the deadbeat, the adulterer, because they were. You're going to blow it because it's in your genes. It's how you were raised. You feel like you're in a downward spiral that began perhaps with your parents, perhaps with your parents' parents, perhaps with your parents' parents' parents. But it's going down and you're in it. You're stuck. It might be the result of nature, genetics. It might be the result of nurture, how you were raised or cared for. But it's defined you and you're stuck. But the question here today is, does it have to define you? Do you have to be stuck? Is there no way out of the downward spiral? The counseling world, and you know, I, I think I opened my message two weeks ago with a quote from the counseling world. And I like the counseling world. Do you want to know why? At least they're asking questions like this and trying to come up with answers. They're asking, what do we do with what's wrong with us? And how do we fix it? What is this? What's going on? And we can learn a little bit from their answers. I, I uh, had a professor by the name of David Pallison. He wrote a book, and in one of his books, he's he's 
He's a Christian counselor. He's commenting in broad strokes on the various trends that he's witnessed in secular counseling. And I, I found this to be illuminating here. So bear with me. I'm probably going to break one of the rules of public speaking and read you a long quote. For about 10 years, he says, through the mid-1900s, wherever you turned in the counseling world, you heard that problems in living were caused by painful experiences of being used, misused, and abused by others. Unpleasant emotions, destructive behavior, they're all based on a sense of woundedness and emptiness from bad relationships. Childhood experience was where the action was. Because our families were dysfunctional, we acted out the script of born loser and unhappy victim until we could find intrapsychic healing and emotional filling. Why do I think bad, feel bad, and act bad? Because I was abused. My father made me do it. Give me healing relationships. Help me think healing thoughts about myself. Those were the glory days, he says, of nurture. And then the world changed. That needy and hurting inner self, so marred by tragic experience, faded into the background. Along about the mid-1990s, everyone discovered that our genes, hormones, and brains caused problems in living. Our bodies, not our families, were dysfunctional. Because our bodies are dysfunctional, we are puppets that dance on neural strings to tunes programmed by our genes. And the right drug can smooth things out when the dancing gets spastic. Why do I think bad, feel bad, and act bad? I'm miswired. My physiology made me do it. Give me healing medications to calm me down or lift me up so I can feel and function better. We're now living in the glory days of nature. Nurture, nature. If you're a machine with malfunctioning parts, a mere organism, then whatever makes the parts work better will make you better. The action is now in your body. It's what you got from mom and dad, not what they did to you. The excitement is about brain functions, not family dysfunctions. The cutting edge is in hard science, medical research, and psychiatry, not squishy, soft, feel your pain, psychologies. Did I lose you completely there? You with me? Okay. He is saying that... Trying to answer this question, are we just stuck? Is there a way out? What's the problem? How do we fix it? Trying to answer these kind of questions, the secular counseling world has pointed to nurture, nature. And tried to kind of come at them one at a time, if you will. He oversimplifies the history and he knows that, but, but it helps us to see what's happening. They're going to look at nurture and say, nurture is the problem. It's, 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 it's the way your daddy raised you that's the problem. Therefore, we've got to get you in to, to therapy groups and loving relationships, and that will heal. But it doesn't work fully, so they start to shift. Okay, that doesn't seem to be taking care of the root problem. Therefore, nature Let's focus in on nature. Let's look at genetics, not just what your daddy did to you, but what your daddy gave to you. And so we'll start tinkering around with the brain and chemicals and things like that. And maybe that will fix you. Maybe that will break you out and let you be free. That doesn't work fully either. Collison goes on to describe how the secular counseling world has been oscillating between these two, nurture and nature, actually for decades. And will continue to do so. To no avail unless they would finally start 
leading their patients to Christ. It is not, don't misunderstand me, it's not that some of these things, like, you know, certain medications and support groups, it's not that these things are not helpful. Not at all, I'm not saying that. But I am saying that they, 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 they can't get deep enough. They're always going to remain on the outside and remain, therefore, essentially unsuccessful, fundamentally unsuccessful because they can't get deep enough. They can't go where Christ goes. Christ is the answer to our nature and nurture problem because He gives us a new nature. And He brings us into a new family of nurture. (laughs) Heavenly Father, by His Spirit, through the cross. But all that will come more into view as we go on here this morning. As I'm reading the genealogy here in Luke, I'm kind of seeing the the downward spiral of a family line. And if you were to read it from Adam back up, that's kind of what you see. It's this downward spiral of a family line, it would seem, with each passing generation from Adam. It's just like things are on repeat. Things are going down. Like there's the occasional high water mark with a dude like Noah or, or, or David or Abraham or something where people start to get hope that maybe something's going to turn around. But if you read their stories, and we've talked about this before, it just kind of gets, they fall back down into the dirt from where they came. Men's fallen nature and nurture ends up always getting the last word in this family line. It's just the, the record's on repeat here. And, and I think I even prayed it. it. It would look to our eyes like, like we're just going backwards, like we're just going down. But as we look at the genealogy in Luke, what we come to see is what seems like us going backwards is actually God slowly but surely moving us forwards towards the answer. While we thought we were going down, truly He's been preparing to lift us up. The outline for this morning is really simple. You could probably see it on your handout. But um, I want to look at first... Two sons, and then second, from that, draw out three implications, okay? That's what we're going to do this morning. Now, first, two sons. We have to ask, uh, I think, and I imagine some of you are wondering, uh, two sons, what in the world are you talking about, Nick, two sons? I'm seeing... Son after son after son after son after son after son after son. In fact, there are 79 sons on this list. I counted, and I read them all. I think I only stumbled over a couple names. (laughs) 79 sons. Why am I saying two? There may be 79 sons in this list, but there are only two sons of God on this list. And they come, they appear in this list at the beginning and the end. And as such, they kind of set this frame around the genealogy through which we kind of are given window. We can look in and see what Luke is after when he's recording this. If I could see the frame, I could see the two sons of God on either end, I'd get a sense of what's happening in the chaos of the middle. So that's where I want to focus for a moment. Two sons. On the back end, you have Adam, the Son of God. Verse 38, the last part. Wasn't it just profound when we came to that? At least for me. You're the Son of the Son of the Son of the Son of Adam, the Son of God. Now, I don't know if any of you were, 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 were struck by that like, like I have been. Like, what is Adam doing being called the Son of God? I, I, I thought that was like Jesus' title, you know? Like, that is for Jesus. What is this doing being given to one of God's creatures? A human being called a Son of God. 
And this is profound. It is amazing. It should stagger us because it speaks to, to God's original design for us. What He wanted us to be. Now, as I thought about what it means for Adam to be called the Son of God, I came up with four things. This was just the top of my head. I'm sure there's a lot more. I'll give them to you here. Why is Adam called the Son of God? First, because he was created in God's image and likeness. That's Genesis 1 right there. Created in God's image and likeness, meaning he reflected, he was, he was created to reflect God. I don't know about, about you guys, I don't know about your kids or whatever, but when I walk out into the grocery store, whatever, people know these are my daughters, you know? Because they look like me. At least Chloe really does. Bella looks more like her mommy, I think. People agree? (laughs) But you can tell that they're reflected. They're reflections of me in some way. And in that sense, Adam is son of God. He's created to reflect to the cosmos the glory of God. And all that he is, all that he does, his character, his vocation, his, his, his love, his life, all these things pointing to his father. Second, he's called the son of God, I think, because he was included in God's holy family and presence. I mean, when you're a son, you get to come into the lap of your daddy. And Adam walked with his father in the garden. He's there in the father's presence. Third, he's called the Son of God because he was given a position of honor above all creation. I mean, sons were honored. And, and, and Adam is given kind of this, Adam and Eve really are given kind of the capstone of, uh, they're made the capstone of God's creation. They're put at the top. They're his most prized possession, if you will. And along the same lines, um, the fourth thing we could say is that he's called the Son of God because he's given his Father's world as an inheritance. So there's this honor, there's this position given to him, and he's, he's the inheritor of, his, of all of his Father's possessions, which is everything. God looks at him and says, he looks at Adam and Eve, and he says, listen, subdue, have dominion, Go, spread out, be fruitful, multiply, fill. It's yours. So there's, there's this, this number of stuff that's packed into this idea that Adam is the son of God. And it, it's amazing to us. And this is why, listen to this, when we read Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, and David seems to be reflecting on, on this creation account, says this, When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his Feet. He's looking out and he's saying, I see all that you have made. I see how big and glorious you must be. And yet, I am amazed at this thought. You have put me over all of this. As in creation, God is putting man over it all. He is giving us such great privilege, such honor, such glory. But it wasn't enough, was it? It wasn't enough for us. It's never enough for us. There's always one more thing we think we need. (laughs) Something here I wanted to read. We had everything except for one thing. And that one thing became everything. So we ended with nothing. We were sons of God, but we wanted to be God, you see? It's not enough for me to be a son. So the serpent comes. Hey, you eat that. You will be like him. 
You will, come on, you're going to start moving on that throne. Let's speed up the process. Let's get there. Let's get to glory now. Why be a son of God when you can be God? And our attempt at self-deification was truly our demonization. This is how sons of God became sons of the devil. We start to look more like snakes than like God from this point forward. It's why, it's why we looked at it a few weeks ago when the crowd comes out to John the Baptist. He looks at him and he just says, You brood of vipers, Luke 3, 7. You offspring of snakes. You don't look like the Heavenly Father. You look like the devil. In rebellion against God. Not adoring, worshiping, loving. Amazed at all He's given to you and the place of honor He's put you in. So the rebellion of Adam sets in motion the fallen nature and nurture that characterizes the 77 names that follow after as we move up from Adam on that list. Fallen nature, fallen nurture. Humanity is in a desperate state. We're all like Esau, sold our birthright for just a stupid bowl of soup just to get immediate gratification for my desires now. We're all like the prodigal son, selling our inheritance so we can go and splurge and end up in the pig's mud. And then, though, at long last, 77 names later. There's more in between. I mean, genealogies in, in, in Israel and things were not even exact by any means. Um, there, there were plenty of other sons, I'm sure, in between. <laughs> but 77 sons later, there arrives another son of God. Verse 23. The second son of God, as we shall see, is being put forward as God's answer to all that went wrong with the first. Now, if you're looking closely at the text, and I hope that you are, I want you to keep me honest, it doesn't call Jesus the Son of God there, does it? No. If you look closely, it says Jesus is the Son of Joseph, right? Well, almost. Almost. It's like Luke can uh, hardly bear the thought that we would misunderstand his point. So he inserts this parenthesis. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. He's saying, Jesus being the son, parenthesis, as was supposed of Joseph. In other words, he's not the son of Joseph. He is the son of God. In fact, I mean, we recall that God had just declared over him what? In verse 22. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well placed. So there's two sons of God here and they frame this genealogy And they help us see what Luke is after. And again, what we're going to see is Luke's ultimate aim in recording this list is to show Jesus as God's answer to Adam. What the first son lost will be regained by the second son. Jesus alone can deal with our fallen nature and nurture problem at its deepest level. Here's what I'm seeing. There's two ways you could read this genealogy. The one way is is kind of what I said before. I'm sure there are more than two, but two ways I've been reading it. 
The one way is what I mentioned before. It's kind of like this downward spiral of a family line. It's just, oh, it's on repeat. And we're hopeful and then fall, hopeful and then fall. The Bible is, the Old Testament is full of stories that are just almost, but not quite. Almost, but not quite. That's one way you could read it. You want to know another way you could read it if you're reading it through the lens of Jesus, the Son of God? It's awesome. I'm seeing the hand of God, almost like a, like a master gardener at this point, coming into humanity, and he's going to pull this thing up from the roots. He goes down. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? We're not just mowing over the weeds here. He's going down. That's what we're watching. He's going down through David, through, you know, Jacob, Isaac, Abraham, Noah, all the way down to Adam, to the root. We are going to deal with this at the roots. With the arrival of Jesus, God is pulling this old, fallen humanity up by the roots and He's planting something all together new. That's why I'm seeing this genealogy. Now, implications start to to spin off of um, these observations regarding the two sons. And I just have three for us here. Let me begin with the first. The gospel requires genealogy. The gospel requires genealogy. Genealogies actually feature quite prominently in the Old Testament. I I mean, I don't know if you realize this or not. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, do one of those plans... You've you've had to face this this cold hard reality that that genealogies feature prominently in the Old Testament. <laughs> I mean, there are there are entire chapters devoted to genealogies in Genesis and books like First Chronicles and others. And so, I mean. If you're like me, it's like you, you, you're all excited, right? You wake up early, you're doing your devotions, you got your cup of coffee, you're moving on to the next chapter, and you know, and you just crossed off the last one, and now you're, oh no, seriously, First Chronicles one—that's where I'm at in my devotions right now. One through nine, cha- chapters one through nine are are just a list of names. That's all it is. <laughs> And you're thinking to yourself, God, will you judge me if I just skip this? <laughs> you know, I, I, maybe I'll skim it. I'm certainly not going to journal about it. <laughs> but regardless, when you come to these things, you're going, what is the point? Why the genealogies? Why these long lists of, of people? What is this doing here? And while it seems genealogies became important to the people of Israel for, for many different reasons over the years, there was one fundamental reason beneath them all. And hopefully, I've gone here so many times, you know where I'm going. The promise of a second son, if you recall, was made back at the fall of the first. The promise of a second son was made back at the fall of the first. Genesis 3.15, there is going to come a child who will, who, will, who will stomp the head of the serpent. And the, the implications there are he will undo the curse. He will be able to put things back together. There is the promise of a son, a child. You see, so this isn't just some, the first gospel promise in all the Bible isn't just some generic God will save you. It's God will save you through a son. And because that promise has to do with a child, genealogies start to become very important. Do you understand what I'm saying here? By nature of the case, if, if, if it's going to be a son, 
that's going to make things right, then those who are waiting for that promise are waiting for the promise with genealogical records in hand. Like, we are wondering where this son is. Where is he coming from? It matters that he's the son of, and the son of, and the son of, and the son of. That matters because it's, it's coming forward from this original promise of a Savior Son. The hope of the world, according to Genesis 3.15, is hanging on a genealogy. As redemptive history unfolds, God narrows in. He narrows in more and more on the genealogical line of this promised child. He narrows in. He narrows in from Genesis 3.15 onward. Even as the nations start to diverge and expand out, a golden thread is kind of identified running through it all. And God's got His finger on it the whole way as it goes from Adam, Seth, Noah, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jesus. So the genealogies in the Old Testament exist fundamentally to preserve this line and point the nations, us, Israel, everyone to this line and to where this line is terminating, namely the person of Jesus Christ. That's why if you do read 1 Chronicles 1-9, through you'll see not every tribe is given the same kind of airtime. No, not, not at all. Judah and David are given so much more space because Chronicles probably were written by a post-exilic community going, where is the Davidic king? Where is he? We're in exile here, even in our own land. Where is the king? This promise that goes all the way back to the garden. Where is he? That's what's happening in genealogies. It's big. The gospel requires genealogy. But, in another sense, amazingly, the gospel repudiates genealogy. You guys know what that word means? That English major friend here probably knows what that means. Reject. Rejects. Won't be associated with. Rejects genealogy. The gospel requires genealogy in one sense, and then it repudiates genealogy in another sense. Let me show you what I mean. And this almost knocked me off my chair, this realization. While genealogies are are given page after page, chapter after chapter in the Old Testament, when at last they are drawn to the person of Jesus Christ, genealogies are not given another thought in the rest of the New Testament. They don't matter anymore. Have you realized that? The only genealogies you're going to get in the New Testament are the ones in Matthew and Luke where they're drawing the line from the Old Testament to Jesus. After that, there is no more concern for are you in or is which line or what's going on here we're tracing. No more concern for genealogies. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> you don't find a chapter or two or three or nine in Paul's epistles. Devoted to genealogies. Why? Because the ultimate purpose for the genealogies was fulfilled with the arrival of the promised son. You understand this? (laughs) The genealogies in the Old Testament are not primarily concerned with preserving Israel's ethnic identity. That's not why they exist. Israel might have taken that and started to to go that way with it. 
But the genealogies in the Old Testament were not primarily to preserve Israel's ethnic identity. No, they, 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 they were trying to preserve Israel's ethnic identity because God promised that from Israel would come the one who would preserve the world. That's why Israel's ethnic identity mattered because the golden thread was running through them. And when he arrives, the end of that thread, the end of the promise, the point of it all, you could toss your genealogical records aside because he is here. And this is why it's amazing. There's a profound shift as you move into the New Testament. After the arrival of Jesus Christ, in the Old Testament, the major question is, the major question is, where is he? Everything went wrong with the first Adam. Where is this second Adam? This one who's going to make things right. Where is he? And then you come to the New Testament. And that question, that question is no longer where is he? It's now. Now that he's here, are you in him? The big concern after Jesus has arrived is not, are you of this or that tribe? Are you ethnically Israel? Do you have this or that mark? Are you of this or that people? Or do you have this much or that much righteousness? No more. The big question now, are you in Him? Consider Paul's words to the Galatians. Galatians 3, 28-29 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ, in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All the distinctions, Paul is saying, have been repudiated. I don't care if you're Jew or Greek. I don't care if you're slave or free, male or female. All that matters now is that you are in Him. If you're in Him, you belong in the family room of God. That's all that matters now. It's why there's no genealogical tracings in the New Testament. But there is constant exhortation to get into Christ. The point of it all Perhaps there's no more potent example of the New Testament's priority at this point than in Paul's opening lines to the Ephesian church. I want you to notice how significant he just he accents unity with Christ in him, in him, in him. Hear me on this. This is Ephesians 1, 2 through 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I wonder if you could sense the Apostle's great burden. 
the entirety of gospel promise and power is now most potently contained within the sphere of the Messiah. It's all in Him. Everything comes to us in Him. You want blessing? Every blessing in the heavenly places? You want, you want holiness? You want blamelessness? You want adoption? You want grace? You want redemption? You want forgiveness? You want the inheritance that you lost in the first Adam? It's all found in Christ. So the big question now and forever is not, are you of this or that line? Do you have this or that pedigree? What's your family like? What's your righteousness like? The big question now and forever, are you in Him? Have you drawn towards Him by faith, received, embraced Him? And are you keeping on drawn towards embracing Him today? But why? Do we know why Christ is the answer to all that went wrong in Adam? Do we, do we know how it is that, that, that God in Jesus is pulling up the roots of our fallen nature and nurture and all this stuff? How is God doing that? Do we know how God takes sons of the devil and turns them in to sons of God again? How is He doing this? Do we know how? The answer to these questions, of course, leads us to the cross. You want to know why being in Him is everything? It's because of what He did at the cross. Consider the scene as Matthew describes it. Here's the second son now, coming to redeem those who have fallen in the first son. This is uh, Matthew 27, verse 39. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Was Jesus the Son of God? Absolutely. In a way that no man ever was, ever will be, He is the Son of God. But will He come down from the cross? No. You keep reading, verse 41, more people join in, mocking Him around the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked Him, saying, He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He desires Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And does He trust in His Father? Yes! In a way that Adam never did. But does His Father deliver Him? No! Why not? Because on that cross, the Father and the Son are too busy pulling up weeds. They're too busy turning sons of the devil into sons of God. 1 Corinthians 15.22 As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. He is taking the death due us for our sin so that He might give us His life. All who are in the Son are given His life because He has taken their death. That's what's happening When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Galatians 4, 3 through 7. The counselors got it right. They did. Nurture, nature, those are our big problems. But they know nothing of the deep solution. They just can't get there. They're tinkering from the outside with pills or support groups and they can't get in. But Jesus is going in. He's changing the nature. He's changing the nurture. He puts His Spirit inside of us. He is in us now. And He brings us into His Father's family. Now, guess what? Will nature and nurture be decisive for you? Yes. But not the nature and nurture that was propagated by our fallen parents and their parents' parents and parents' parents all the way back to Adam, but by the nature and nurture of our new family line, namely the one we've been brought into by Jesus through the cross. Here is the answer to our original question. Does your past have to define you? Are you stuck in a downward spiral or is there a way out? There's a way out. And His name is Jesus. So I don't care where you come from, who your mom was, who your dad is. I don't care the background you have, full of shame, sin, dirt. Believe me, in one sense I care, obviously. But it's not decisive for you. It's not going to have the last word for you who have come to Christ and embraced what He's done. He will watch over you. I mean, there's that text in Jeremiah 32 about the new covenant. It says, God is going to plant you now. He's going to see to your growth. He's planting you. He will watch over you. Jesus will not only be your Savior, He will be your genealogy. That's why in Him is all that matters. Now. Third and finally, and I'll leave us here in just a couple minutes. I wanted to close with a quick reflection on fatherhood. I thought to myself, man, you know what? What a text to just happen to be on on Father's Day. But this, in many ways, is a, is, is a tribute, if you will, to fatherhood, albeit not always the best in this, but still, it's a tribute to fatherhood. You can't get away from it. It's the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, a father, 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 father. This whole text is just fathers. So let me close with thought on Fatherhood, as I consider this third implication, the gospel redeems genealogy. Gospel requires, repudiates, and redeems genealogy. All the men in this list that Luke records, they're all fallen dudes just like us, dads. You read the stories of Noah, Abraham, Jacob, David, these big guys, you read their stories closely and you see it. Fallen fathers. But they had one thing going for them. They had one thing. And that one thing is everything. Though they were not the promised Savior of Genesis 3.15, They stood in line to point the nations, their people, and their families to Him. You hearing me on this? These fathers, though they were not the promised seed, and though they continued in many ways to propagate fallen nature, fallen nurture, had one thing going for them. They stood in the line that was pointing to the one who could change it all. And here's where I'm going with this for 
us dads, we will not be perfect parents. But we can be pointing parents. You hear me on that? We are, we are, we are, we are giving to our kids. We, we've already given to our kids our fallen nature inherited in Adam. And we're still going to nurture them in fallen ways as, as sanctification works out and we're battling with the flesh. It's still going to, you're still going to raise your voice and do things you wish you didn't. But in all of that, you can still point to the one who can redeem not only your child, but you. And so we, with our kids, are walking to the foot of the cross and worshiping together. I need this Savior. I need this genealogy just as much as my kids do. I don't know if you feel that way. Like your, your parenting is decisive in, in how your kids are going to be. Like, if you blow it, they're going to be screwed up forever. No way. You blow it, you want to know what I see in those moments? An opportunity. An opportunity to point to the one who covers us when we blow it and can change us from the inside out. And you show that to your kid, and that that blowing it just turned into an amazing witness. We are not perfect but we can be pointing parents, right? Let me read you something I found in a blog I follow, and we'll close here. A story about a dad with his son. A few weeks ago, while we sat together in my home office, I was trying to show my son the significance of his sin in a particular and regular situation. I was angry with him and felt defeated, Eventually, I yelled at him out of frustration. Then, in the middle of me trying to diagnose his sin, it seemed every sentence coming out of my mouth revealed questions I needed to answer as well. Been there? Don't you realize that in your actions, son, you're showing you only care about putting yourself first? Can't you see the effect your sin is having on our family when you continue to act this way towards the people you love? Over the course of a few minutes, the Lord showed me that what I was angry about in my son was the same sin I harbor in my own heart. Pride. Selfishness. It's disgusting. Oh, it may look different. My sin may become easier to hide and more nuanced with age, but it's the same ugly root that needs to be severed. My son and I both need the good news of the gospel. What I thought could be a teachable moment for him ended up being one for me. As I saw the heaviness of my own sin, the burning in my chest became too much to bear and gave way to tears streaming down my face. This wasn't the sweet, sentimental tears of television. This was the ugly cry, complete with sorrow and not. We sat and cried and talked together. It was one of those moments where you just want to sit in it for the afternoon and let whatever is happening silently run its course. We prayed for each other. We confessed our sin together. We grew. My son is my brother in Christ. We're fellow heirs, co-combatants in the war against sin. God's grace is at work in our lives, conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. And one of the ways is through encounters like this one. It was a teachable moment for us both. And then he concludes, May we be fathers who point our children to the true and better Father. That's how you can redeem your genealogy. Not a perfect parent, but a pointing parent. Jesus, thank you for the gospel. I mean, if what I just ended with isn't true, I I, I couldn't parent and I couldn't pastor. (laughs) If I thought I had to be a perfect pastor, I couldn't bear the weight. But I thank you that I get to be another one among the number here that are sinners saved by grace slowly growing into our sainthood 
(laughs) into our true and deepest identity implanted by you. God, I pray for those in this room who are not yet in you, if there are any. And I ask that they would see it's not a long, arduous process. It doesn't require years and years of genealogy or law-keeping. All it requires is to fall and to receive by faith what you have done, what we could never do with our medicine and our strategies. And if there are some here who are in Christ and yet feel like they're grieving the Spirit because they're not abiding in Him, they're not abiding in the one that they have been united with, God, please, would you help them to count all things as loss, to run towards you again. Thank you, Jesus, that you're with us in the journey and that you're not going to give up on your children. It's in your name we pray. Amen.